Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here, as always, with the lovely Tina Spring. And today we have yet another one of our fabulous guests, Dr. Erin Malone. Dr. Malone is a veterinarian. She is a diplomat. Um, I can't, she's got more initials behind her name than I can pronounce, but she's a veterinary medical oncologist at MedVet Columbus. She has been part of the oncology team since 2011. She attended the State University of New York at Geneso, where she earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree, and Ross University School of Veterinary Medicine, where she got her doctorate of veterinary medicine. Following her graduation, she completed a year-long internship in small animal medicine and surgery at Long Island Veterinary Specialists, and then she did a three-year residency in small animal oncology at Cornell University of Veterinary Medicine. She received the E. Gregory McEwen Memorial Reward in 2009 for Outstanding Basic Science Research Project in Oncology. She has been published in the Veterinary and Comparative Oncology, the British Journal of Nutrition, and in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine. She maintains an interest in all aspects of oncology and a particular interest in the diagnosis and cytology of Okay, if I don't pronounce this correctly, you'll need to uh, correct it for me, Dr. Malone. Hemiopoietic tumors? Hematopoietic. Yeah. Hemato- okay, hematopoietic tumors, which we don't know what those are, so you're going to have to inform us on that. Anyway, she, um, I got to know Dr. Malone. She was the oncologist for two of my dogs and provided exceptional care and compassion when dealing with two dogs with um with, uh, with uh, cancer at the same time, and we've been very grateful for her friendship and her services during that time. So she's here today to talk to us about cancer, because it's a scary thing, and we thought it would be time to sort of bring it out in the open. So with that, thank you, Dr. Malone, for joining us, and Tina, I believe you're up with the first question. Um, so my first question is actually going to be about mast cells, but I, I will say it's Geneseo. Oh, thank you. Oh, you know that. Yes. I I was born in Lockport, New York. And, nice. And grew up in Horseheads near Ithaca. We were yes. at the, we were at Cornell Kettle Judging Pavilion with Ithaca Dog Training Club my entire youth. So I I do know Geneseo well. <laughs> my um my current dog is from the Horseheads um animal shelter. I adopted her during my residency. So yeah, nice. small world. Small world. Yes. So um so I completely selfishly I'm gonna open with a something for for my household. We recently adopted a dog who turned ten, a Jack Russell, who turned ten yesterday. Happy um, birthday. Happy yes. birthday yeah. to him. That, he got special cookies. Good. Um, and he came to me with a cyst kind of in the where his collar would go. My vet did two needle aspirations and found one mast cell um, and a whole bunch of lipids. And so we're staring down the gun of surgery to remove some some mast cell tumors. And I know there's all sorts of recommendations in every which direction about mast cells. So why, if I have an oncologist on the call, I mean, 
ask what you would recommend. Like, do I need to race out and get him on Benadryl right away? Um, well, it can't hurt. Um, so, um, going back to, so hematopoietic tumors are bloodborne tumors. Um, and, um, I don't know that mast cell would typically fall into that, but, um, mast cells are a normal cell in the body and they're part of the immune system and they play a role in inflammation and, um, they contain chemicals like histamine and heparin. That is why many dogs that either have allergic reactions or um, have mast cells are put on Benadryl. It's from that histamine component. So um, I guess the first thing I would say in terms of your own pup is um, one mast cell does not make a diagnosis of a mast cell tumor. Now it could be, but because it's a normal cell in the body, it may just be responding to regional inflammation. And so um, getting a biopsy of that mass, taking it off and sending it to a pathologist is really what you need to know the diagnosis, to know if this is a mast cell tumor or not. And if it is a mast cell tumor, then they'll also be able to provide information on a biopsy, which you cannot get on cytology of a mast cell tumor about the grade and um, more specific information to know what the prognosis is. But mast cell tumors are the most common skin tumor in dogs. But again, every dog cat person has mast cells in their body. So one mast cell doesn't yet mean we're dealing with a mast cell tumor. Excellent. That is really good information. I did not know that about mast cells. And I find the, um, the whole thing about histamines, that's immediately when you said that, I went, oh, and of course, Benadryl is an antihistamine. So Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, that's interesting. So what do you find that if you had to say something to the general public about cancer, um, because I think that for most people, when they hear that word, it just crushes their soul. The idea yep. that my dog has cancer, there's nothing I can do. This is a terrible diagnosis. Um, you know, we might as well just, you know, feed him treats and call it a day. But I don't think that's necessarily true. And, and so what would you like to say to the general public about cancer? That's a great question. So um, cancer, I mean, there's definitely a lot of stigma associated with that word. And it's a it's a big word. And there's a lot of relatively benign cancers. And there are some really aggressive, poorly treatable cancers. And so um, my whole my whole goal as an oncologist is to try to help the owner understand what we're dealing with. And if we don't fully know to give them options for um, a workup so that we can answer those questions to really know what's the prognosis, what are the treatment options, what are the side effects of treatment so that owners can make a more informed decision because it is a very scary word and it's it's very scary when your vet tells you um, your pet's been diagnosed with cancer and everybody thinks the worst. And I can't tell you how many panicked owners we have that call and, you know, want to get seen the same day, which would be great if we could accommodate that. But they're just, they're so scared because of what um, they don't know. So my whole goal is to help them understand so that they know what options they have. Um, and the sad truth is cancer is so prevalent nowadays where it's estimated that 50 to 60% of pets that reach the age of 10 are going to develop some form of cancer. And so sadly, it's more a question of when, not if, um, for the majority of our pets. And so again, it's really just helping clients and vets understand what are we dealing with. 
wow, that is an amazing statistic. Why do you think that we have such cancer rates in, in, in our pets? I think part of it is um, that we are, pets have become much more important members of the family. And so compared to 20, 30 years ago, there are many more workups being done and many more diagnoses being made compared to, again, 20 years ago, where you may have just attributed it to old age and that's why my pet died. So I do think that the role of the pet in the family has changed and will continue to change. Um, and I think our diagnostic tools are getting um, more advanced. I think that more people are investing more money or insurance, which is a great thing, so that they can do the expensive workup and treatment if need be. Um, but I also think that, you know, the sad fact is I think we're all exposed to many things that can cause cancer. And by the time, the reason why most cancers are seen in older people and older pets is because enough time has elapsed where you're exposed to these things where it can cause the DNA damage that allows cancer to happen. So I think it's just a combination of all of those things. Huh. Okay. So what would you say are some of the most common cancers that you see? And, and other breeds, we, we, I, Anybody in the dog world knows that golden retrievers are sort of an incubus for cancer. But uh, are, are there breeds that you see more often than others and other cancers that you see more often than others? I would say probably the most common cancers that we see in dogs and in cats is lymphoma, which is a cancer of a white blood cell called the lymphocyte. That's a super, a super common cancer that we see every day. We treat it multiple times a day. Um, mast cell tumors are definitely a common cancer we're faced with, um, in, um, in dogs and to lesser extent in cats. Um, those are probably the two biggest ones. And then in terms of, um, what breeds do we see? I mean, there are definitely certain breeds that are predisposed to getting certain cancers, but we see all breeds. I mean, um, it's funny, you see a cavalier walking into, you know, going into the clinic and you can guess that they're probably going to see on or, or, um, cardiology, excuse me, because they're known to have heart issues. But um, if you were to, you know, take a screenshot of our department where the pets hang out, you're going to see all breeds. And so um, while certain breeds may be predisposed to certain cancers, I do think that cancer is just prevalent across across the board. Okay. Tina? So there's been a lot said, Dr. Malone, about diet and inflammation and how that can contribute to cancers in both humans and in our pets. Can you speak to that? So I think that there's a lot that's unknown in terms of the contribution of diet specifically to pets with cancer. We do know that overweight animals may have a higher tendency to get um, certain cancers. Um, but in terms of, you know, diet specifically, I actually um, went to a conference where there was a veterinary nutritionist there. And she said, you know, any diet you can pull off the shelf that's not a prescription or is not homemade are fairly equivalent, which was kind of mind blowing to me because, you know, you think of the real cheap brands um, and then you think of these really expensive brands. And for a nutritionist to say, yeah, they're pretty equivalent um, is kind of mind blowing. So I think in terms of cancer, yes, inflammation can definitely predispose to cancer. Do we have hard statistics about, you know, 
do we see less cancer in pets that were fed a home-cooked diet versus a commercially formulated diet? No. Um, so, you know, what I tend to tell people, everybody wants to know diet suggestions when they come um, talk to me. And really the only thing I can tell them is it's fine if you want to home cook. Um, there are veterinary nutritionists out there that you can contact and get a more um, balanced home cooked diet going. It's fine to feed a commercially available diet as long as it's something that the pet is used to eating and um, who their body agrees with it. The last thing I want to do is, you know, potentially start a pet on chemotherapy, which obviously can have side effects and then change up the diet and have the pet not eating. So it's really more important that to me that they're eating um, consistently a relatively, you know, balanced food as opposed to one specific diet. Okay. That makes, yeah, I think it's, it's important to remember that, that chemo can have side effects in, in animals as well as humans, including maybe suppressing appetite. So mm -hmm. what you want to do is make sure that the dog is eating because like humans, they need to keep their strength up and exactly they need to, to be nutritionally sound as possible. So do you find, um, so you said that lymphoma is probably one of the most common ones. Um, is lymphoma one of the cancers that is is uh, most treatable uh, in cats and dogs? It is actually. So um, it's treatable from a standpoint of chemotherapy. There's you know plenty of cancers that can have a good prognosis with surgery. Um, but in my realm, in medical oncology, um, we're working the case up and then referring them to a surgeon if they need it. And it's always great if they don't have to come back and see me. But in terms of um, cancers that respond to chemotherapy, there's actually um, not too many, and um, but lymphoma is one of them. So that's one where we know, um, and it's been treated for decades in animals. Um, so it's one where we have a lot of information about what the prognosis is with treatment, without treatment, and granted, it, there's always individual survival to factor in. And so there's always some dogs and cats that respond way better than you could have anticipated and fail therapy, fail therapy miserably much sooner than we would have anticipated. But it's one where we can guide owners to say, this is what it should, um, how it should respond with this protocol versus that protocol. And it is one of the more treatable ones that we see. Okay. I remember when, when my dogs were being treated with cancer, one of the things that we talked about was um, that the cancer being naive. And I found that to be an interesting um, concept. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how chemotherapy works and the idea of a, of a naive cancer, meaning that, of course, that it, it, is, it doesn't know what's hit it. And sure. So, so if you could talk a little bit about how um, chemotherapy works and yeah it so um, yeah so chemotherapy are drugs that are administered systemically and for the most part most of what we use is all human chemotherapy it's off-label use for pets but again it's been used for decades and the biggest difference in treating people versus treating pets is our main goal is quality of life. And yes, we would love to cure our patients, but we're not going to make them miserable for whatever time they have left. So quality of life is um, huge. Um, the reason why these drugs are known to have side effects is because 
once they enter into the body, all that they know how to do is kill rapidly dividing cells, which is what your cancer cells are. But unfortunately, as innocent bystanders, some of our normal cells are also rapidly dividing and they are injured as innocent bystanders temporarily. Um, and that is the lining of the gut, which is why you hear about things like nausea and vomiting and weight loss in people and in pets on chemotherapy. Um, and it's the bone marrow, which is the white blood cells and the platelets. So those are the two main organ systems that are affected by chemotherapy. The difference is normal cells have the ability to repair themselves, whereas cancer cells don't. Um, and so the side effects, if they're going to happen, really should be very temporary and only lasting a day or so. And so if the gut is affected, hopefully you don't see anything more than a day where the pet is having um, a decreased appetite or an episode or two of vomiting or a short bout of diarrhea. Um, if it's going on for days, then certainly that's not the quality of life that we're looking for. And because the gut cells have the ability to replace themselves, um, those side effects should be pretty temporary. If the bone marrow is affected, the main cell that we're worried about is the neutrophil, which is the white blood cell that helps fight off infection. And so we are constantly checking blood work in our patients. Um, and if the neutrophil count does go too low, that means that that pet may be more susceptible to infection. And generally, it's just their body's own normal bacteria that's going to make them sick. It's not the family members. It's not usually other pets at home. And so it's usually just all of the bacteria in the gut. Um, so if the counts do drop too low, we make sure the pet doesn't have a fever, that they're feeling okay, that we put them on antibiotics to give them a little extra protection. And usually within a few days to a week, the neutrophil count has rebounded and it's back to normal. And certainly if the pet does get sick, um, then we take appropriate actions and potentially reduce the dose of the chemotherapy that made that pet sick moving forward again, so that we're not creating those symptoms over and over again. Um, in general, I tell people that 70 to 80% of pets that feel okay at the time of diagnosis are really not going to have any major side effects from chemotherapy. And of the 20 to 30% that do get sick, it should be very mild and self-limiting. And our clients know they can call us day or night and we'll help them figure out if it's something where they can try some things at home, some medications or diet, or if it's, if it's serious enough to warrant having that pet seen due to side effects. But less than 5% of pets really get sick enough from the chemo that they need hospitalization and less than 1% of pets can actually die from the chemo rather than the cancer. So um, they're not benign drugs. And that's part of why every owner has the ability to say, I don't want to pursue treatment or if they start treatment, they can stop if, you know, if the quality of life is not good. Um, so that's generally how, why chemotherapy creates side effects. Um, in people, of course, we lose our hair because our hair is continuously dividing. Um, the same is true in pets with continuously dividing hair coats. So old English sheepdogs, um, labradoodles, poodles, anything that basically needs to be groomed to keep its hair short 
they're going to get pretty bald with treatment and it's just <laughs> cosmetic. Um, all other breeds, their hair may thin out a little bit, but that's why, because again, the hair is a rapidly dividing cell essentially. I had, I hadn't realized that uh, I hadn't really thought about whether or not your dog is going to go bald under chemo. Um, yeah. Some people really worry about that, but the only, the only client that really should be concerned was I had a um, golden doodle with lymphoma and she got diagnosed probably in the spring and she was completely bald. Like Aww. poor dog looked like a plucked chicken come summer and they were worried about sunburn. So I actually um, got some guidance from Dr. Toyce, who I know you had on an right, earlier podcast right. about what we could do for sun protection. And she gave me some good ideas, but it's usually not that severe. It, it um, They may thin out, but they're not going to go bald. But this particular patient did. And um, but her hair grew back, at, you know, even before the end of chemo. So it was just the time of year where we were concerned. Oh, that that's really very interesting. So um, I guess I'm a little bit curious. What can you do for um, uh, <laughs> so there are some, um, there are some pet safe sun, uh, uh, sunburn lotions. And, um, if you really want to laugh, you can Google sunsuits, which are basically clothing for pets. And it's like, it's basically like, um, a jumpsuit that covers their ankles all the way up to their neck that has UV protection in it. And you can see pictures of dogs wearing these crazy suits. And, um, these, these particular clients were going to the beach on vacation. This was a couple of years ago, but I can imagine, um, what the people on the beach must've thought about this dog, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so there are some things and obviously trying to avoid, you know, the heaviest times like 10 to two is just same as, same as people tell us. Right. Well, do you find then, um, for example, if, if, um, you have a dog who's on chemo and then you put them on antibiotics and you start having side effects, um, is it sometimes hard to tell what the side effects are coming from? Cause I know, um, like my Zuzu, uh, when she was diagnosed with Lyme, we put her on doxycycline and she did not tolerate it very well. So we mixed, we switched over to amoxicillin and she did just fine. So are this, are the uh, side effects going to be different? Can you usually tell where the side effects are coming from? That's, that's a really good question. So it is sometimes a little bit of detective work to figure out, is this from another treatment or a different diet, or is it from the chemotherapy or is it the cancer that's making the pet sick? So that goes back to, um, in terms of how chemotherapy works, Generally, if the gut cells are going to be damaged by chemotherapy, again, it's self-limiting. It should only last a day or two, but generally those side effects are going to start two to three days after the treatment because that's when those gut cells um, are dividing and are damaged and, again, shouldn't last more than a day or two. So, And every chemotherapy is a little bit different. There are some where they have a much higher expectation to cause GI side effects and there are others where it's a very uncommon um, side effect for most pets to have GI symptoms. So it's trying to ask that client um, while you're thinking of, well, what drug did I give it last? When did I give it? Does it fit with when I would expect GI side effects to happen? Has this pet had this chemo before and did they tolerate it fine? Is there something, did I increase the dose and that could be why they're not feeling well now? 
And if you think it's from the chemotherapy and they're stable, you might just say, you know, try to feed a bland diet or administer an appetite stimulant for a day or two, and then call me back and let me know how your pet is doing. And if they're not getting better, um, then you start thinking, well, could it be something else going on like an antibiotic or pancreatitis, which is super common in pets, regardless of if they're on chemotherapy or not, or have cancer or not. Um, so it's sometimes doing a little bit more digging to try to figure out what the underlying issue could be. Okay. So can you also talk a little bit about why is it that chemo works for a while and then stops working? Yeah. Yep. So that's a great question. So, um, I, I tell clients that back, um, cancer cells are very similar to bacteria where once they see the same drug a few times, the cancer figures out how to become resistant and then the chemo stops working. And they have these built-in mechanisms, um, the cancer cells do, to become more resistant over time. So um, with naive cancer, going back to your question with naive cancer, that basically means that the cancer cells have not yet seen treatment. So they're gonna be much less resistant compared to a cancer cell that has already seen multiple different chemotherapy agents and has that resistance mechanism already built into place. And that's why when you are dealing with resistant cancers, we deal with this all the time in lymphoma. They do great on the first protocol and then, you know, potentially the cancer comes back and they do okay, but then they start failing every other therapy. And that's um, because the cancer cells are just becoming more and more resistant. And there's a lot of different mechanisms behind that. But it's again, it's very similar to when you hear people talk about superbugs that are um, resistant to all these antibiotics. Um, so, uh, so that's why resistant cancer, as opposed to naive cancer, can be much more difficult to to treat. Right, right. Um, and it, what's interesting to me is um, is the fact that that. Um, it's it's almost as if once the cancer has been treated with some sort of chemotherapy, even if you do a completely different agent um, for um, cancer treatment, it's like they've they've somebody's already tipped them off, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that, it, yep. that it's coming. That even if you become resistant to you know agent A, when you try reagent B. It's like we already got an idea of what's going on here. And so it's like yep. they developed this universal resistance, which I find um, fascinating. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. So the resistance mechanisms are not necessarily particular to each different chemotherapy agent. It's more of chemo in general. So that's why most of the time, fewer and fewer chemotherapies are are becoming effective. And it's not that you're picking the wrong agent. It's that um, they're just becoming more resistant. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, they had a little network of spies that had yep. now informed them of mm-hmm. this is what's coming at you, and so just so you know. And so I I I, I think that that would that's kind of discouraging. I mm-hmm. think for for owners. Yep. But um, one of the things that that I would say that that we found with the treatment that you gave to both of our dogs is is we knew that the cancer that our dogs had histiocytic sarcoma is a is a nasty aggressive cancer and that we weren't talking about cures but what we were talking about was giving our dogs a real quality of life which is what we did and you know mm-hmm. i think buckley got um 
three more months and Bingley got a full nine, 10 months out of it. And um, those were good months. And Mm -hmm. it's up until the very end, um, they were both doing really well. So I think one of the things that the people need to understand too, is that if you have a healthy dog, one who's, you know, fit and well-nourished and in general good health other than the cancer, that's something to consider when you when you try and decide what to do about cancer treatment. Because what I found was having generally healthy dogs underneath the cancer, we were able to give them that quality of life that um, we, we had hoped for for them. So I think that um, w- taking care of your pet and making sure they're, they're a good weight and they're eating well and they're getting proper nutrition it's not it's not a magic wand to get rid of cancer but it may give your dog a better chance if it does get cancer yep absolutely so the goal is to maintain that good quality of life and you know one of the questions i get is or the comments i get from clients is so you're telling me you know with all this my dog has 10 months to live and that's not not really what i'm saying i try to outline for them what prognosis we expect, but, you know, some dogs may live for three years, some dogs may live for two months. And I think 10 months might be a reasonable expectation for a certain cancer treated a certain way, but there's always dogs that surprise me for better or worse. And so I tell them, you can always hope for better. It may not happen, but I'm the last person to claim to have a crystal ball to know what's going to happen unless, you know, the pet is really doing poorly in front of me, then, you know, I think it's, it's, easier to say time is probably short, but other than that, it's anybody's game. So, um, what would you say is, um, the thing that you, you've chosen, I think a really tough field to me. I'm not sure I could be an oncologist, um, dealing with this kind of thing on a daily basis. So I wanted to ask you what, what's the joy that you find in this practice? That's a great question. So, um, and I always think shelter medicine is the most sad to me, but um, uh, the joy I get is, so I do have a lot of patients that come in and despite the fact that they have cancer, they look great and they feel great. And um, one of the things in where I work specifically is unless the animals don't get along with each other, the dogs are kind of roaming free in our department and they definitely find their buddies. And, you know, it's fun to see week after week, they seek out their friends. Um, so, and we get, we get to know them, we get to know the clients. Um, and I think that my joy specifically comes from the fact that I'm, I'm here and I'm able to answer questions for clients where, you know, their vet may not be able to answer the question so that they at least get some guidance. So really that that's why I go to work every day is so that owners can have some questions answered. And it's not this, you know, it's not just this word hanging over their heads of my pet has cancer and to be able to give them back their dog and it's feeling well on treatment and is living a good life and hopefully for a longer period of time. um, That's really why I do what I do. And I think it's because, you know, throughout my career, um, whether I was a vet assistant or in vet school um, or in my training, there's so many people that just give up once they hear the word cancer and um, and their hands off at that point. So I, I at least want owners to be able to have somebody where they can run their concerns by and get their questions answered. I think that's really important because it's 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 
it's so much harder to make a decision not knowing if you have options. And it's not to say that you have to take every option available, but it's nice to know that there's somebody there who can provide you with at least some more information yep. than is available. So if somebody would want to do some, some more reading or some information about cancers or um, what's available, uh, is there any kind of resources or websites that you would recommend that they take a look at to learn a little bit more about what they might be facing with their dogs? That's a really good question. I've never been asked that before, but um, there are, I think we have some information on our website at MedVet, but there are definitely um, some hospitals that have a lot of information about certain cancers. Um, one, one particular resource is um, the Veterinary Cancer Society website. So that's um, the group that basically most medical oncologists, radiation oncologists belong to. And it's a good resource for us. It's also a good resource for owners where they can go up and look at um, specific diagnoses in, in certain species and get more information. They have some good information. Um, VSSO.org, Veterinary Society of Surgical Oncologists, VSSO.org. They have mm -hmm. a lot of information on their website. Um, so those are probably two good resources that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, great. We will make sure that those two websites are on our um, our uh, episode page so that if people need more information on cancer, they have a good, reliable source to go to. Um, one of the things that um, I'm sure you find, because I know Tina and I find this all the time, is that people search the web and they come to us with some really interesting ideas. And mm -hmm. the web can be wonderful. It can also be a very scary place, providing a lot of misinformation for people. So it's nice to have good, reliable sources for them to be able yes. to go to. So, yep. well, thank you very much, Dr. Malone. We really appreciate you joining us today. And um, for those of you who are in the uh, central Ohio area, you can... Um, Go, you can, if your dog has cancer, you can go to MedVet Columbus and hopefully you'll get the wonderful Dr. Malone to help you deal with <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> any Julie. issues you may have. All right. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.